Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Emma Enderby is the chief curator at The Shed at Hudson Yards, a unique art institution with a bold vision of and for the century we are in. In this fascinating interview, Emma talks passionately about the guiding principles that help building the program. We discuss what makes good art, her personal taste in art, as well as books and artists that inspire her. Among them, Agnes Dennis and Hilma of Clint. Commissions are at the heart of The Shed's mission. One prime example being the annual Open Call, which opens on June 4th this year. Open Call is a series of exhibitions and events aimed at providing invaluable support, visibility and recognition to New York's early career artists working across all forms and media. The Shed's remarkably innovative design is at the core of its support of artists' visions and the work they create, all under one roof. Or, in this case, no roof is an option. So Emma, very welcome to the show. You are the chief curator at The Shed in New York. Yes, I am. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I looked into your background and I saw that, that uh, you used to be the associate curator of the Public Art Fund in New York. You also were the exhibitions curator at the Serpentine Gallery in London. And before that, you were working on exhibitions at the Royal Academy of Arts and the Whitechapel Gallery and also worked with uh, public programs at the National Portrait Gallery in London and the Museum of Modern Art. So I thought to myself, you really started at the top and then you work yourself up. <laughs> That's, I mean, I worked at a lot of uh, brilliant institutions, but it's definitely been, um, you know, a stepping stone each time. You kind of start as an intern and then slowly work work your way up that kind of curatorial ladder so yeah. yes I've been very privileged to work at all these brilliant institutions that have taught me so much but it has been yeah it's been a it's been a journey as, as well for me you also are a writer and a lecturer and I've understood that um, your writing is uh, related to the exhibitions that you've organized uh, if you would get a book deal to write a book about something what would you write about that's that's a really interesting question. I've thought about this a few times. I have, you know, I'm writing right now a text that I would love to expand on, maybe turn into a, a show or turn into a larger book, which is the intersection of science fiction and art. I think that it's really grown in, I mean, we do see it grown through the 21st century and into the 21st century because it's so kind of attached to our climate emergency, you know, the uncertainties of the way technology plays in our in our, our world and our life, you know, what is consciousness now, what is humanity, and I see it playing out more and more in artists' work, and I'm just writing this text, but I'm that would be, I think, something that would be really interesting to expand on. Another idea that I would love to explore is environmental formalism, actually, how artists are also thinking about um, our climate emergency, but through sometimes through form rather than something kind of direct, um, yeah, to more kind of minimalist terms or conceptual terms. So that's another another area that would, would be of interest to me to, to write about. But um, we shall see if I ever get craft out the time to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So would that be then fiction rather than, uh, you know, like a documentary-oriented thing? No, I mean, it would, unfortunately, no. I One day I'd love to write fiction, but I'm not there yet. It would definitely be rooted in... Um, thinking about artists' practice that draw on the traditions, say, of science fiction to um, talk about what it means to live now um, and the future. So it would be very much rooted in artists' practice through the specific lens, yeah. So I was curious about your, your, your last name there, Endeby. You know, I'm from Sweden. That could be a Swedish name. B is like a village in Sweden. So Endeby could be Emma from Ender. Vill the village of Ender. Have you have you researched your name? That is the kind of common mythology of the name that the family we are from Sweden, Scandinavia originally. Is that, it, that is true. I mean, so my family, my Enderby side is from my father's side is from the from the north of England, and that is the 
the law, if you will, of the Enderby family that they came <laughs> originally from that part of the world. And some of them became farmers in the north and others actually um, became whalers, interestingly enough, in London. Oh. Um, there's a few Enderby um, dwarfs and alleyways and such um, named in London. Um, yes, yeah, so they went kind of two different di- directions. But yes, that is the that is the story. And even you can see in the kind of old black and white photographs of my family these like crazy blue eyes that like pierce through pierce through the photograph. <laughs> so yeah. there's some Viking blood there if you if if you look closely. We'll see. Yeah, who knows? But that's the somehow the story. You are the, um, the chief curator. Now, can I ask you, what does a curator do? A curator does many different things, and depending on um, also what institution you're at. So, you know, at the Shed, um, my role as a curator and as the chief curator is to really oversee the whole visual art department. And that is both my curatorial colleagues, but also the exhibition management. And, you know, the role entails a lot of research, studio visits, thinking about what are kind of contemporary conversations when you're a contemporary curator, like I am, that are happening today. And how can you weave all those conversations together and bring um, kind of look for patterns sometimes within the way that artists are working and thinking. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of the research side. And of course, we write texts and make books and all those types of things. But then there's also a whole suite of kind of practical things that you do as a curator, especially when you're commissioning, like we do at The Shed, which means really making new work. So that is, you know, everything from helping artists think through materials to connecting them with fabricators, working with them to plan an installation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hugely varied. Um, and then, of course, there's all of the marketing communications. The curatorial team works very heavily in that regard on kind of really contextualizing the work, writing texts about the work, really positioning it for audiences, essentially, and making sure that work can be accessible um, in that way as well. So it's a it's a very varied job. Um, people sometimes think it's glamorous. I'm like, not, you know, like the glamour <laughs> part, maybe like 3%, the rest of it, um, you know, Last week, we were packing boxes, you know, it, you do like lots of different things and in the role as a curator. Yeah, there is a sort of a deep sense of purpose in your in your work that sort of is glamorous in its own, right? I mean, there's like, a, it's important work that you do. For me, it is important, you know, in, in I think that artists can tell us realities of our time, stories from the past can predict the future so important in helping us understand our reality in the moment that we're in mm-hmm. uh, it can be oracles in that way and I think it's so important to help them to commission artists to make that work you know I just think back to why I became interested in the first place in art history and it was you know I actually started as a classicist and then started being more interested in how you could think about history through objects and architecture rather than through language necessarily and then kind of became more of a social art historian but I think about it all the time about how art is also going to be a message for the future in understanding what this moment what this moment was like it is for us from the past so um, I do think that there is um, that it, it is a, an important an important role for, for society yeah yeah I, I saw in one article here that um, uh, the, the interviewer was asking you about curating as a creative act and uh, that curator, in a sense, they are artists as as well. Do you see yourself as an artist? It's interesting you ask that. I don't necessarily... I know, I don't see myself as an artist. I definitely see myself more as a a bridge or a facilitator between an artist and an audience. Um, That's definitely how I kind of understand and see my role. And, you know, it's interesting because the the, the word curator, it it comes from to care, but it was to care for objects, you know, to, to preserve things. And I think that that, for me, has definitely expanded outside of it just being about the object, but being about people. Like, how do you care for the artist? How do you care for your audiences? For community and society. And I think that there is so much creativity within that. And I think that the role is incredibly creative without necessarily wanting to turn myself an artist per se. Yeah. Have you ever thought about becoming an artist at some point in, in your life? No, I have. I've literally never thought about I'm becoming an artist. No, I'm not. <laughs> 
<laughs> I I live and breathe art, but I am not I'm not an artist myself. No. How do you, together with um, Alex Potts and, and Hans Ulrich Obrist, how do you decide? Okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. Not that. This is what we're going to do. H- how does that process work? Yeah. So we have a programming team, which is myself, Hans Ulrich, Alex, Tamira McCaw, um, Maddie Johannes, and we all come from very different perspectives, um, focused on different areas. And it, it comes from an incredible amount of conversation. You know, for me, I have a few, just speaking personally, a few kind of guiding stars in thinking about what should enter our program. Um, you know, we have such this privilege at the shed where we get to commission artists and that's an amazing thing to be able to do is to offer artists the opportunity to really make new work and so one of those guiding kind of stars and principles for me are thinking you know what are the artists that haven't necessarily traditionally got those commissions those opportunities um so we do have kind of a part of our program is rethinking the canon or representing artists that have historically been marginalized you know emerging artists as well or another kind of core part of our programs mm-hmm. you know you that an open call and then I think the other really side of the program that we talk a lot about is how do we also be a place that can center kind of urgent issues of of our time of the past as well because many of them have been going on for a long time but things like the center on climate change or on you know technology's role within within society all these things racial injustice all these things weave in to our our program at the shed so um those are kind of the the guiding principles that we have um in trying to build this program um in in our building but you mentioned in an interview you said i've thought so much about space and landscape this last year about our bodily relationship to nature and place as well as the proximity and distance so when you look back at your thinking if i can say so has how has it evolved over time i think everything kind of folds in and and comes out of of different moments but there are definitely themes obviously a uh, humanity's relationship mm. to nature how we can somehow maybe reembed ourselves in the world in the landscape you know we've kind of since the enlightenment like removed ourselves in a way from thinking that humans are of nature and that separation um has caused specifically in the western world you know such um it's been such a detriment to our society so that is mm. something that i've been thinking about for for a long time but i think that really only i'd say in the last few years that i've been really articulating that in my exhibition practice my exhibition making practice yeah you see these kind of threads from being you know working with Spencer Finch to plant 4000 trees for a project with Public Art Fund to you know learning about Agnes Dennis at Public Art Fund and then mounting her retrospective you know at the shed so there are all these lines that you can see that that run through um but not perhaps not so kind of prescriptive yeah you see this podcast is about New York and uh, this caught my interest you mentioned NK Jemisin's new book The City We Became it's about New York now can you tell us about the book and and why it caught your interest yeah absolutely i don't know if you i mean she's this brilliant eco sci-fi writer i don't mm-hmm. know if you're, you're familiar with with her work but i read a trilogy of hers which was to me completely mind blowing i mean she just knows exactly how to create a world that lets you kind of really really delve into that and then this book was you know was super in, you know i live in new york and especially during the pandemic spent a lot of time walking in ways that i hadn't actually ever done before in the, in the same way mm. and you know this this book really looks about how new york has its kind of own soul it it is both ancient but also based in in the future i hate giving i'm someone who hates giving away too much about books but it essentially is kind of a um sci-fi understanding of new york city and takes this city as the kind of starting point and follows these kind of different um protagonists through 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 the city hmm okay so that's a recommendation to our listeners really to go out and get the trilogy and 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 start reading you know there's earth threatened by a great evil it it 
it's quite brilliant to, to read it. I mean, it's also based in this kind of the uncertainty of, of where the future is going and um, where humanity is going and how humanity might have to adapt, right, to, yeah. to stay on this earth. So I definitely recommend it. She's, she's an amazing writer. I, I saw this interesting analysis that in New York you have the Metropolitan Museum, you have uh, the Museum of Modern Art, and you have Lincoln Center, and now you have the Shed. That was a little bit how someone characterized this in the sense of its importance. And how would you describe the, the essence of the Shed, sort of the, the DNA of it? What, what, is, what are you trying to achieve here? Uh, we opened in 2019. Part of our mission is to try the of and for, you know, this century that we're in. We want to bring both established and emerging artists together. Mm. Uh, but the range of work that we commission and work with is extremely varied. You know, it is pop, classical music, but also like painting to digital media, sculpture, literature, theater, I mean, dance. I mean, it's, you look through even just our short um, time of programming and it's incredibly, incredibly varied. Mm. And I think something else that is such a core part of our mission and vision is really reflected in the fact that the shed is also a civic institution. You know, it was a city initiative. The city kind of gave the first seed money to realizing it. And with that comes a civic responsibility, right, to ensure that um, New York communities, both artists and audience, have kind of access to cultural opportunities. So, From hip-hop to classic music, visual art to literature, film to theatre and dance, under one roof. Uh, so let's talk about Open Call. So, so what is this? So, yeah, I mean, the programme is really a cornerstone of the Shed's mission. And, you know, for us, it kind of reflect everything about our mission is embedded in this programme. It's bringing artists working across all disciplines, you know, all the disciplines you just mentioned, plus more, um, you know, everything in between within our program. And we provide a commissioning fee of up to $15,000 um, and support in realizing in realizing the work. And it is an open call. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... Uh, super important because we it is it is open anyone can apply any any early career artists can apply and we really clarify that by thinking through artists that haven't had major commissioning opportunities in the city that's kind of the important crutch yeah. and we then kind of convene and work together with colleagues in the field to help us select these artists and that's also a really important part of this program because you know what it does it, it decentralizes the curatorial voice right it says that it's not all emma's decision mm -hmm. it, you know or alex's decision it brings in uh, these diverse perspectives into our curatorial process, um, which perhaps would get us to artists that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. You know, this year uh, we launched. Well, we had the we launched the open call last year, and we had uh, one thousand five hundred proposals wow. uh, were submitted. Yeah, so I think it doubled from the first time we did it. So that was that was great to see. And then we had, you know, forty three reviewers um, looking through all of the uh, applications, and then we convened a panel of about fifteen of us, and that was last summer, where we whittled it down to the artist list um, that we're presenting summer. That's incredible. There are so many things that go into commissioning. It's not just about having a great idea. It's like, can it be realized? Is it going to be within budget? You know, is it something that will be achieved within that amount of time? And so it's so important for us to have all that information mm -hmm. to really be able to make a decision. But I also think it's great practice for artists because once you're needing to think about what it means to put together a budget, think about what it means to put together these different elements, it really can help to clarify a project and clarify a proposal. Um, and so I think that it, it, it is an, an important process for people to, to go to and, and really help them to kind of cement and develop, develop ideas. Yeah.
then the process start of actually creating what you proposed. And that you do at the shed, and then you have sort of continuous support from uh, your staff and organization. Is that correct? Yes. So once we select the artist, begins the kind of making process. Um, and we don't actually... For the visual art, we don't make at the shed. Most artists have their own studios or sometimes they put that into their budget. Producing team um, of the shed then really work with them over the next, you know, eight, nine, ten months to every step of the way help to make sure that they're connected with the fabricators or thinking about the right questions, um, making sure that they're hitting their deadlines all along the way. And then in the performing art side, um, similar, but we do have rehearsal space at the shed, can give our building over to artists wanting to, to rehearse in, in, in the building as well. But similar process of really working with them step by step to make sure that the work leaves the piece of paper and enters enters the world and can be can be presented yeah so what can we say about the 27 artists uh, this time around opening on june 4th is the gallery exhibition and it's it's presented as a group show and within that you're going to see so many different mediums i mean we have just to pick a couple um an augmented reality work by caroline garcia there's multimedia installations by kenneth tam and simon lu and adosier um painterly sculpture by the artist taj rust it really showcases the way that artists are working today both in terms of theme and themes and then the plaza program is just as dynamic it's 13 new commissions that it starts on june 3rd and run runs for a month and just to pick out a couple we open with this ceremonial work by neo witherspoon which also includes augmented reality it's exciting to see these mediums really entering artists work one that i'm particularly excited about we're holding a service by troy Anthony for Juneteenth that allows people to really challenge their grief into joy. And the, we're also turning our plaza into an Olympic arena by Anna Maria Gary Johannes. Um, <laughs> so that is another kind of huge transformation of the space. And this year we also have a couple of social practice projects, which mm -hmm. is the first time we've brought that discipline into open open call. Um, Cindy Tran, she uh is making this kind of spoken word sonnet inspired by the stories of local business owners from all boroughs. And there's also going to be a series of workshops that center the concepts of black interiority through actually through play and through building um, with the artist, uh, Lady Sasha Jones. So it is, it is a great mix of work that, that you're going to experience both in the gallery and in the plaza program. That's exciting. And so open call is, go, is going on continuously over, over, the, over the year, over the rest of 2021. Is that correct? Uh, next, from June and July is mm -hmm. our gallery program and our plaza program is in um, July. And then the, the rest, the main rest actually of the open call, the kind of other bulk of the program um, will happen in our theatre in 2022. It was another kind of was a bit of a COVID decision in that we felt that we could, you know, when you're planning this a year ago, we we felt we knew we could realize an exhibition and hopefully the, you know, the, the plaza is semi outside. We have the doors open in, in a court, but we were not sure about our theatre program, you know, indoors capacity, et cetera, with, with COVID rules. Mm. So we that program in 2022 so yes it does span across um across the two across the two years you had artists last year and and now this year so they become part of your family in a sense right and they and you will have a relationship that will continue into the future do you have any ideas of how to use this in your program going forward you described it perfectly in terms of family they they really do become part of our family and we have worked with artists again. You know, last year, for example, we commissioned Keon Williams. Um, they made a sculptural work performance piece in the exhibition. And then, you know, when our doors closed to the public with COVID, we started making, um, producing an online digital series called Up Close. And several of our open call artists we returned to and uh, Keon 
they made this beautiful piece for that particular series. So mm. we're constantly thinking about how we can weave these artists again into our program and remain within the family. And of course we invite them to everything the shed does will be references for them. We'll send them things that we think would be of interest for them to apply to. And really for me, it's so important to continue to support their careers as they grow and flourish. Well, you mentioned in an interview that, that you believe that the best way to create opportunities for emerging artists is to belong to a community or to create a community. And, and I thought to myself, it's also what you are trying to do. The shed is like this incredible thing that's been lowered into the, the Hudson Yards. So you have a very strategic role here to create that community for, for, for the shed. And, and, and I guess that is why open call is so important to you yeah absolutely i do encourage everyone artists to, to kind of build that community because it's those other artists those other curators that will support you champion you uh put you in shows help you connect with other people be a support network and yes at the shed we are constantly thinking about how we can be of and for new york um for also our local community and that really there is no kind of silver bullet for that uh, I don't really prescribe the kind of if we build it they will come you know attitude mm -hmm. I think de developing an intersectional audience takes a lot of intentionality and it really weaves through everything we do at the organization from curation to planning um, ticketing I often think about my colleague Dupay, who is our intersectional marketing strategist, and she's constantly even discussing how like language matters, how images matter, how everything kind of has signals. And she works very with very specific communities to bring audiences to the shed, as well as our kind of free ticket access program. You know, but free and open call is free, uh, isn't always the only way. And I have brilliant colleagues in my civic department, Tamir McCaw and Solana Chapman, who I create, a, they're kind of the other half of open call with the mm -hmm. visual art department. And they often take programming outside the shed walls and have commissioned, you know, dance and poetry with, I think, over 20 schools. They recently commissioned a walking tour in the city that explored July's, uh, the July 1863 race riots. Um, and so I think also also, leaving the building can do, and going to other communities can do just as much to build a community and an audience for within the building, within the shed. Um, and that's kind of an important part of, of what we do, what we do as well. Do you think that the image of Hudson Yards, uh, a little bit like uh, the millionaire's paradise, will somehow maybe influence how people look at the shed? Yeah, of course. I think that, you know, you can't decouple the shed from the context that it's in, you know, I, we are on city-owned land, um, so there is that kind of distinction. I think that the way that you can attract audiences in just all the reasons I just said, it's to kind of build, it, embed that thinking into everything that you do and be patient too as well like it, it it's not always going to happen overnight and it takes a lot of work and a lot of people and personal relationships and being out there and you know speaking to not just kind of presuming anything and that's i think the way that you can bring a community to any any place yeah. um, so it's not easy to do that and, and i guess that is something that you have to earn uh, you know in the public mind over the years absolutely it's it takes that and it takes, you know, I have colleagues that a big part of their role and job is to go to community boards, is to listen, is to hear about what is wanted and then bring that back to the institution and help us embed that. You know, for example, we can nest the shed, we can roll them court kind of back. Our building is kind of crazy flexible, it's on wheels, and it rolls back and it creates this public plaza, which is super important to us and to our communities to kind of create a space that is free and open and public and accessible um, during certain months. And that's something that we try and strive towards. But yes, it, it takes individuals, it takes, you know, it, it takes that kind of intentionality to really create those bridges. It, it is a journey that we are on at the shed. Um, but luckily I have incredible colleagues that work in that way. 
artists in general are not really that great at uh, self-promoting. I mean, there's often uh, like a conflict between um, the artistic side and the business side of it. So, uh, do you do you provide any support uh, for these artists uh, once they've they've uh, participated in the open call? Yes. So we have been fiscal sponsors. We have written, you know, multiple reference letters, suggested them for. Um, certain awards and such like try to really connect them to um our our colleagues in the field you know it's it's been the the slight challenge of doing this through covid is that that building of a community that kind of network that comes from open core is a difficult thing to do virtually you know especially we had all these like I said, 43 reviewers, 15 panelists. And in, in our first time around, we were all able to meet, make these introductions. The open call artists were able to meet. I think some of them even went on to form collaborations. It kind of just um, helped that building of community, which, you know, this year, everything being virtual, I am hopeful that, you know, as things open up through the summer, we can sort of start to hold some of those more kind of convenings as well for our artists to, to meet each other and, and meet some of the supporters of the program. So what can we expect through the summer and the fall? Yeah, I mean, I would enc- really encourage everyone to please come see Open Call, both in terms of this performance program and its visual exhibition. You know, I think COVID protocols are lifting slightly. We will still obviously be stringent in some regard, but it's not quite as um, taxing as it was a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a great relief for us going into into open call. Maybe it'll be interesting to hear about some of the themes that actually run through open call because the year that we've just had has obviously had an impact on artists and there are these kind of specific themes that really run through. Um, You know, just thinking about the gallery exhibition, we have artists that are, you know, exploring, documenting local New York communities. Aisha Amin is one. She's looking at historic Brooklyn mosque and and Muslim life in Brooklyn or Anne Wu, who's made this incredible sculptural piece that explores architectural ornamentation in immigrant neighborhoods. Um, Kind of another thread I would say is around memory and around dreams. Um, this is great piece by Pauline Shaw she's created kind of this beautiful large-scale felted tapestry and it kind of looks abstract but it's actually derived from the artists researching memory and MRI scans um, which is kind of a brilliant thing about how you can really visualize that um, in abstract terms. Uh, Emily Brissot she's blind but she uses memory and imagination to create sculptures Hmm. um, that reflect her actually her kind of collaborative bond with her seeing eye dog london she's super interested in kind of interspecies relationships um and of course loss and mourning plays um an important part throughout all of all of the the programs that we're doing i'd say especially on the plaza program actually where many of the pieces were conceived or shaped as rituals and services um places for human encounters so i think the impact of the pandemic and the kind of hope of us all being together again has really inspired um, many artists. Yeah. yeah. How does this thing with a retractable uh, on wheels, uh, the shed? How does that work? Does it uh, does it function in reality? It does function in reality. Um, it is quite incredible. So the space when it's deployed, we call it the court, and yeah. you know, it's a performance space. You can black the place out. So we had our, you know, Bjork performance um you know Renee Fleming and such and then it's on these wheels and it's a quite a simple system I mean listen I'm the I'm not the technical person it's probably hugely complicated the whole building, <laughs> the whole it looks simple when you look at it but the whole building gets like disconnected and then it essentially rolls back and from my understanding it's the similar technology that is used um to bring like shipping containers you uh-huh. know when you like shipping so it's on these wheels and it kind of just set on these tracks and it literally just rolls over the top of what we call the fixed building and then that creates this outside space but you can also have it 
out but with the doors up and that's what we're doing for open call so it's almost like a pavilion style space where people can wander in um with the kind of these huge doors open um open to the elements so it's very flexible in, in that regard yeah And, you know, in the summer now, you can have open-air concerts and stuff. It must be just magical there with the plaza and the people wandering around. Yeah, it's it's great. And, you know, open public space is super important. After we do open call, actually, we, well, after we do the plaza program, we're, we're nesting the, the shed and we'll have an open plaza and we're actually doing an augmented reality art exhibition Um mm-hmm. It's called The Looking Glass. It's co-curated by myself and Daniel Birnbaum, who's now director of Acute Art. And lots of different, you know, it's Cause, uh, Precious Okuyoman, Julie Curtis, Oliver Lyson, Thomas Saraceno, Darren Bader, like a huge, great list of artists. So our plaza in the summer will be also activated by invisible public art. <laughs> That you can see through your phone. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. So, and when is so? When is that? Uh, that opens uh, July third. Okay. Yes. Well, we have to we have to put that on the calendar. What is your taste in art? What do you like personally? I like interesting materials. So I'm always drawn to artists that don't that kind of incorporate different types of materiality into their work be it um, living matter, be it technology, you know, I, those be it kind of materials you wouldn't always necessarily expect to see. I think that for me, I'm very drawn, like art for me has to have these kind of two companions in a way. Like one, it has to me speak to me like visually, aesthetically, it has to be something that, you know, perhaps I haven't seen before or feels like fresh or a new innovative format. But then also that the kind of kind of real conceptual rigor has to be there. It's like, why is this being made? What's the the story? Is it is it too introspective? Is it looking outwards? All of these questions kind of run through my my head when I when I think that and look at art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of the dynamic of, of those two. So what is then good art? Is that something that really um, affects you emotionally or do you use any other criteria for, for deciding what, what good yeah, art is? Yeah, I mean, I use several criteria. I would say that somehow like bad art affects me more <laughs> when I see something, <laughs> when I see something really bad. I'm like, oh, God, no. Um, no. Uh, but, yeah, but, I mean... I- but, you know, that is really true because I, I, I have the same reaction. I have a very dear friend who's an artist, and I say, fucking, that was horrible. Well, that was good then. You know, yeah. <laughs> it did something for you. Yeah, but I didn't like it. Well, but it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, um, I also love art in unexpected... I mean, I loved working at Public Art Fund. I think it taught me... It taught me so much about art because before I'd kind of always mainly worked inside gallery walls and there's something very um, protective about the gallery space, you know, the white wall, the concrete, you can put an object in that space mm. and it can have some kind of power. You take the object out of that space and it can lose all its power. Mm. And so I think working in public art can really like push you as a curator to think about what, you know, what is those questions that you're asking, like what is special about art? What is special about an object? How can you have an object speak, you know, outside of itself to variety, you know, to different audiences? So yeah. I think public art had kind of a huge impact in my learning and, and thinking in that way. Um, but I have different criteria, you know, it's important that integrity is embedded into into art practices i think that that is super super important um as well as obviously kind of for me something will stop me in my tracks when i haven't necessarily seen that before oh yeah doesn't necessarily have to be new medium it can be kind of a new way of painting or a new way of imaging the body but like oh you know that you see so much that when something kind of like makes you step back i think that's always 
always worth kind of researching and that is very intuitive mm. and it's hard to put words to to that sometimes um have you uh, worked with rosalie goldberg at performa um, i've never worked with her directly but, i mean i love their program they do such great work and i love that the festival kind of takes you to different parts of the city and it is in a sense it is kind of a i guess a museum without walls it has um uh it has kind of a, the essence of public art within 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 that institution as well because mm -hmm. they're working with these different architectures all over the city and you can really make specific work for that for that architecture yeah i mean that they're, they're uh, friendly with very friendly with the curators at, at performer and you know maybe one day we'll hope to hope to collaborate i do mm -hmm. think that i think you're right there's a lot of synergy there um between the two institutions it's a pretty bold and and daring vision here i mean what you're setting out to do with the shed and your your hopes and, and your aspirations it's very easy to check out whether whether you actually are 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 reaching those uh, the goals or, or or the vision and things like that and and i admire that how do you feel about that challenge i mean uh, that must be very inspiring and scary at the same time yeah i mean nail on nail on head there Yeah, I mean, we. I think that for us, it's like we had to be complementary. There's so many great, incredible institutions in this city, both within visual art, performing. You know, it it is so rich that how can we be complementary to this kind of ecosystem that we were entering in? And and we thought that the kind of ambition, the mission that we set out would would achieve that. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of risk commissioning work is full of risk because you literally do not know. What you're, what you're getting until you get to the end and you have exactly to, yeah you have to go on a journey and sometimes this journey takes years actually i started inviting some artists in 2017 and we're only realizing their projects you know this year next year so wow. um yeah there's a it's it's a it's a journey and with that does come a lot of a lot of risk but that's also where you know you can make change and the great reward that comes from that so yes both incredibly exciting and also terrifying sometimes. Interesting, one of your questions you asked about the unique architecture. I was like thinking about that because I was like, yes, on one hand, it is incredible to have this flexible space. I mean, it's pretty wild how flexible the space is. And it yeah. means that you can really start with a blank slate with artists um, rather than kind of responding to an architecture. And I think that it does lend itself to the ways that artists are working today, but there's also a challenge, you know, and because, you know, right now, especially in my department, we're thinking about how, how we can build more sustainable practices actually within our exhibition making and our performances. Mm. And sometimes flexibility um, is, can be kind of antithetical to that, you know, because you're changing everything every single time it's not always um it's not a fixed architecture it's not always the most kind of sustainable way to work so we have been i don't have you read this book by roman um roman krishnarik called the good ancestor i would definitely check it out it's kind of a what's the subtitle i have it over here on my bookshelf it is a radical prescription for long-term thinking huh. and it essentially is a book about how we're all Currently in this kind of modern Western state, we're very much short-term thinkers. Um, and how do we think ahead? How do we think about, uh, how do we be good ancestors? How do we think about our future, 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 um, the future of humanity and plan now for that future? And he has kind of a whole great list, you know, uses uh, one of my favorites is like the medieval idea of like, you know, cathedral building that you start something that isn't going to actually be used for um, many, many years to come kind of outlives the your own lifespan. Um, so, yeah, I've been thinking, reading this book and thinking about how some of that can also be embedded into exhibition making and, and uh, yeah, curatorial practices. But mm -hmm. That's something we talk a lot about in, in my department is that we have this great gift with this great flexible building but how do we also keep in mind that we need to be a sustainable even within that framework yeah 
let's say an opera house, you can do all these productions that are that you just unpack a production and you do it. And but you are inventing the wheel every time. Exactly. I read here that you you organized the retrospective on Agnes Dennis. I mean, Agnes, she was, she is, she is, she turns ninety actually. I think next week she is a um, she's a prophet. I really got to know her work when I was at Public Art Fund because she created this very, very iconic piece where she planted a wheat field in downtown Manhattan and Battery Park, uh, what is now Battery Park City at the time. It was the landfill um, that was created when they built the, the Twin Towers. And she planted this wheat field there, like right next to Wall Street, thinking about that commodity that is traded there, thinking about, you know, environmental concerns connecting the the countryside with the city and it became this kind of sensation at the time and still you know with my I would get emails maybe once a week once every two weeks asking about this project and you know really starting to dig into Agnes's work it that was just kind of the tip of the iceberg of the work that she'd been making she had this in has this incredible drawing practice, mm -hmm. which spans from the 1960s, where, you know, she tried to visualize all of kind of the complex ideas of humanity in visual form. So how do you visualize philosophy? How do you visualize language? How do you visualize mathematics? And then has a whole suite of kind of environmentally concerned projects, not only Wheatfield, but Tree Mountain for New York. She planted 11,000 trees in Finland in this, you know, in this great kind of tree, for, you know, this forest, um, which is still standing at the pleasure of visiting it for, for the exhibition. Hmm. Uh, and then has countless unrealized projects. And, you know, I called her a prophet at the start of this conversation because she really was, I mean, reading through her ideas, she was talking about, you know, solar paneled rooftops. She was talking about building gardens on roofs, like all these things like very early on and suggesting all these different ways that we can um, help humanity in the future. So great artist, but um, also just a, uh, a thinker, um, environmentalist, mm. philosopher, those things as well. So for me, it was um, really important to, to do a retrospective with her. Also, because I think it just related so much to the Shed's program. She was working in all of these different ways and disciplines and had all these incredible unrealized projects that we could work with her with her to commission. So You also worked with uh, Hilma of Clint. What is your fascination with uh, Hilma? I mean, how can you not be? <laughs> I mean, it's like one of the most brilliant, fascinating stories. I curated that show again with Daniel Birnbaum, who at the time was the director of the Moderna Museum and now um, sits on the foundation of the Hilma Klimt um, board, sits on the board of the, of the foundation, I should say. She was making these large scale, you know, one would say abstract, others say they're not abstract, they're complete representations of kind of unseen realities, unseen worlds. It's connected to the scientific revolution. You know, it's thinking about how suddenly things that we could never see before were being visualized and very embedded in its time, but also has this kind of incredible story where she didn't know if she could share her work publicly. You know, at that time, who she was being you know being a woman making that kind of work it was almost too radical for for her moment and was had this kind of great belief that she knew one day it would be understood but she just had to wait it's kind of she's it's that long-term thinking that roman writes about in the good ancestor she knew like her time wasn't well here in that moment and had to had to wait for a future audience to to receive her work yeah um, so, I mean, lots of crazy things happen. Crazy thing happened when we were installing that show. That in her paintings, she has these two swans, like a white swan and a black swan. Uh -huh. And we'd never seen, you know, this is in the Serpentine, which is in Hyde Park, and there's the, the lake. And we'd never seen a black swan. And as soon as these crates arrived, suddenly joining the white swans that we had seen many times, there was this one black swan that was there. I was like, it was all very... Uh, <laughs> this is what Helma does to you. You start building these like narratives and trying to kind of connect to connect to her outside of yourself. But um, yeah, I mean, it's such a powerful story, and my goodness, amazing, amazing art! What a colorist! 
Yeah. And she's an incredible colorist. Yeah. I saw the, the, the exhibition at Guggenheim and those big uh, paintings at the, the ground level, right? They were just, it's, they took your breath away. Yeah, the 10 largest. Oh. They kind of follow, um, there's childhood, yeah, adolescence. That, yeah, they, they follow kind of a, um, a trajectory, a linear path of, of growth from, from young to old. Yeah, those paintings are, are incredible. Yeah. So you think her art has some kind of a supersonic uh, power embedded in yes. them? Yes. <laughs> I, really, I really do. Having spent so much time with them, I, I do think that paintings can kind of hold more and hold the past and hold energies within them, absolutely. And hers is, hers is definitely, definitely do that. Well, that's the fascination with with art, really. I mean, you you go through a a gallery, you feel nothing, and all of a sudden you see something, and boom, you're 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 lost and you're caught. You know, you're you're just done. I just had that with um, the new David Hammond's installation uh, with the Whitney, the public art project that's just um, that's just opened, and it is such a simple idea and piece, but it it hit me so hard because it. It's essentially like, a, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's an outline of a pier that used to be there, which was the Gordon Matter Clark Pier, where he made the cut piece at the end of the pier right by the Whitney. And it's just represented, you know, the pier was is long gone, but it's just um, represented by this kind of very thin piping. And it suddenly struck me to think about, just imagine if we could, through the world, like build almost an outline, the history of what stood there before, and connect us to that to that history and to the architectures that once stood there and therefore the people that once stood there and it all like hit me in in one go and I just thought it's such a it's such a brilliant simple piece um yeah. so hats off to the to the Whitney and, and to David Hammond on, on that project I'm really looking forward to stop by and check it out. I have to say, now that I have I've read so much about you and, and the shed and what you're trying to accomplish, I would love to, to support you in this daring adventure. That would be wonderful. Please do. And let me know if you come by. I would love to. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.